Please stand for the reading of the word from Genesis chapter 4. Now the man knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have produced a man with the help of the Lord. Next, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a tiller of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel, for his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock, their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering. But for Cain in his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Cain said to his brother Abel, Let us go out to the field. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood is crying out to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it will no longer yield to you its strength. You will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Today you have driven me away from the soil, and I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and anyone who meets me may kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. Whoever kills Cain will suffer a sevenfold vengeance. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who came upon him would kill him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. Dear friends, it's so good to have you here today, whether you're with us in person or if you're online, it's good uh, for us to be together. My name is Shane Hughes. I'm one of the ministers here at Highland, and I'm, I'm really glad we're in the middle of this series. I encourage you at the beginning of the, of the year, if you're going to read your Bible this year, Genesis is a great place to start. And so start with Genesis 1 through 11. That's where we're going to be for the next few weeks. And I, I want to encourage you again to, to think about kind of do that Bible reading, do that experience and walk with us as we go through this series on this, the story of our origins. If you missed us last week, we were in Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3, which is the second telling of the creation of the heavens and earth. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates the universe in big ways, throws stars into the heavens, and then sits back on God's throne, which is the universe. It's the only thing that's big enough to contain God. And and begins his reign. In in chapter 2, the story changes. Instead of the universe as the setting, it's God's 
backyard, the garden behind the palace or the, or the throne. And, and God puts his hands into the dirt and then breathes into what he's made and creates man and then woman. And then the story goes south as Adam and Eve eat the fruit that they should not have eaten and are cast out of Eden. And that's, this is where we pick up this week. It's, it's the story of the way that sin is going to unfold. It begins with this disruption, a, a distraction, a, a breaking of relationship between God and, and humanity, between a husband and a wife. But now it, the stakes are going to get a little more, the consequences are going to get a little more severe. Let's pray and then jump into our Bibles together. O God, who uses broken things, uses broken soil to give us food, broken clouds to give us rain, broken grain to give us bread, and broken hearts to give new life. We honor you today. We honor the life, death, and resurrection of your Son. We remember the power of your Spirit as it moves in us and shapes us. We worship you, O God. And Father, now we count ourselves among those with broken hearts and broken lives and desperately need your love and grace to shape and change us. And so as we turn our hearts and our minds to your word, I pray that you pour through me the gift of preaching, that I might speak your truth and love to these, your people. And it's together that the church says, amen. So as the story of Cain and Abel begins... <coughs> Excuse me, we're reminded of the commands that God has given people to be fruitful and multiply, to subdue the earth and the animals. And we can't help but feel the tragedy as the story moves from a family that's no longer in the place that they call home and also no longer living in right relationship with each other to this destroyed family at the end of the story. One brother dead, the other permanently exiled and a mother and a father brutally stunned by the brutality of sin. Things start so well. After all, Eve names her son Cain, which means to get, to create. And this is interesting because it's Cain who is invested with life and with possibility. Adam and Eve have just been kicked out and it's the only place they've ever known. And so Cain represents two things, I think. First, like a lot of families that suffer grief and loss, a new baby represents hope. Hope that things will get better. Hope that life will go on. But Cain also represents something more. Represents that human beings have the power to create other human beings. And if you think about that, that's pretty amazing. Human beings have the power to create other human beings. And they even look like you a little bit. And at this point in the narrative, the only thing that can create human beings is God. But now Adam and Eve can do that too. And we make these little precious, fragile things that will grow up and laugh and have the potential to do all sorts of amazing things. Abel's name, on the other hand, means vapor and nothingness. And that's quite a contrast, isn't it, to, 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 to create to get and vapor nothingness. But by the time of the New Testament, these roles are reversed, where Abel is a person of piety. 
And Cain becomes the personification of evil. And this story should sound really familiar to us if you've read your Bible before, because this, this repeats over and over. Two brothers at odds with one another, struggling against themselves and their siblings, whether it's lying Jacob and foolish Esau, favored Joseph against his 11 jealous brothers, Isaac and Ishmael, Amnon and Absalom, or the faithful, resentful older brother against his prodigal younger brother in Jesus' story. But is this a case of sibling rivalry? I, I don't think so. I don't think this is a case of sibling rivalry. Uh, because I want you to go back and remember something we talked about, the nature of sin last week. Our culture is going to desperately try to push sin into two categories, both of which are close but not quite an accurate picture of the, of the theological re- reality. The first one you might remember is, is the idea that sin is using the metaphor of medicine, that sin is disease that can be cured. But the second is legal. And I think in this case, we end up using the legal metaphor beyond what it can bear. Now, this is going to sound very strange at first, but I want you to hang with me. This is going to sound weird. This text has nothing to do with the fact that Abel gave a firstborn lamb and Cain gave some. I mean, it would be very easy to turn this sermon into like this moralizing message that says, if you don't bring your best to God, God won't accept it. Right? It would be real easy to step into that kind of football coach role and say, if you aren't bringing your best, you don't belong on the field. And it's very easy for us to put on those judicial hats and say, well, Cain is guilty. So he has no right to be angry or downcast. If he wants God's approval, he should work harder. Now, if you read your Bible, you might think you have grounds to disagree with me. After all, God says to Cain, why are you so angry? Why are you dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. And if you have your Bible open right now, I want you to grab a pen and I want you to draw an arrow from the line that says, why do you look so dejected? You will be accepted if you do what is right. And just point that arrow forward to what's about to happen. I think the key here is that God is not referring to the event that happened in the past. God is talking about the sin that's waiting to pounce on Cain if he lets it. God isn't talking about, well, if you just do a better job of giving a better offering, then you're going to be accepted. No. What God is saying is, if you don't deal with the anger and the frustration that you're feeling right now, you're going to find yourself in a world of hurt. This isn't about having an approved gift. One of the questions we should be asking in this text is, how much is God responsible for everything that that goes on? God didn't have to reject Cain's gift. There was no reason to. There's nothing here about God preferring cowboys to ranchers. There's nothing here to disqualify Cain or his gift. It really seems like sometimes God chooses. Sometimes life is unfair. God is free, and God offers that freedom to us as well. And sometimes it isn't going to go right. Sometimes other people are going to get the job even though you are qualified to? Or they're going to be invited to eat lunch at the cool table 
or they're going to get a better raise or have better access or be born in America instead of the third world or make more money. They're going to be smarter or better looking or whatever it is. Sometimes it's going to be unfair. And the point of this story is what we do with the anger and the depression that we feel because sin is waiting right outside our door even if we know, even when we know, that the world is completely unfair. The nature of sin is something outside us waiting to get us. And that kind of pushes against what we talked about last week, the idea of original sin. It's not just something within. It's also something that's out there. But I really have sympathy for God here. God doesn't have any grandchildren. God only has children. Cain and Abel are not the children of his loved children. Cain and Abel are his loved children. And God finds himself stuck in the middle between his two boys. And it's hard to witness, it's hard for any parent to witness their children fight. And so he tries to reason with Cain. He tells Cain that sin is lurking outside, it's outside his door and it's desire for him. And this is a very different take on sin from the story of the garden, isn't it? Sin here is a little bit creepier. In the garden, sin is something you desire and it has apparent benefits. It looks tasty. It'll make you smarter. But outside of Eden, sin reveals itself. Sin is more sinister. Oh, we can try and dress up sin as much as we like. I love him and he loves me. Yes, he's married, but our love is real. So what we do can't be wrong. Or this little thing, it doesn't hurt anyone. So I can keep it in my heart and no one will be affected. But the pretty skin of, th- of sin is thin and tenuous. Underneath is something full of bile and pus. Sin is ugly. Sin is violent. Sin is vicious. Eve saw the fruit was good, but sin's desire is to utterly dominate your life. It's the same word that the author uses to describe the fallen relationship between Adam and Eve. Sin wants to exploit your life. And in Genesis, we're not going to forget that sin at its root is the destruction of relationships. Sin is not the breaking of a rule or a law. Sin is the broken relationship. And the reality is that Eve lost two sons that day. But the brightest theological point in this dark tale is that God seems to think that Cain is capable of doing something about the sin that wants to corrupt him. And this is good for news for all of us because it means we're not totally depraved nor are we spiritually flawed without any goodness in us at all. This story and the one before it in the garden illustrate a tension we all know from experience and one that is evident throughout the wider scope of Scripture. We are all sinners. We sin, but we are also called to holiness and righteousness. For his sin, the farmer is punished in the worst way imaginable. He will now be a wanderer in the land of wandering. God's punishment is more than he can bear. He knows that his guilt and the stain of his sin will follow him, and it is simply too much. But God commits to be Abel's brother's keeper, and God will protect him. 
No one really knows what the mark is that Cain receives. Some people think it might be a tattoo. Others think it might be a specific haircut. Uh, One scholar thinks it might have been a dog. Nobody really knows, but the point is that the symbol is two-edged. On one hand, while it proclaims Cain's guilt for all to see, there's nowhere that he's going to go to be able to hide it. He can't run from what he's done. On the other hand, it shows God's protection. And we all live in that same tension of guilt and grace. We may not know what Cain's symbol was, but we do know what ours is. It's the cross. And whether you wear the cross tattooed somewhere on your body or it hangs around your neck as a necklace for all all to see, it proclaims two things. One, I am guilty. I am part of a broken world and I have done terrible things. I have not loved when I should. I have been selfish when I should have been generous. I am guilty. On the other hand, it also proclaims grace, that my salvation is not my responsibility. It's not because I'm good enough or I'm smart enough. It's not because I gave the best gift. It's because Christ died for me. We might not know what Cain's symbol is, but we know what ours is. It's the cross. And when we gather together, that's what we proclaim. We proclaim that we're guilty and forgiven. So Cain goes off and he wanders, and then the text tells us uh, Cain gets married. And I got a question, like, where did she come from? In fact, I got an email from one of the sweetest ladies in our church about this uh, this week. She wrote and she said, hey, I'm reading ahead, I'm following along, and I I, got to ask the question when I got to Genesis chapter 4, where did Cain's wife come from? And there's there's two answers to this question, and I want to address this in in a pretty frank way. And it, it depends on how you understand the relationship between Scripture and context. And for some, we can't answer this question because the text can't answer the question. All we can do is shrug our shoulders and say, well, God must have made Cain's wife and just didn't tell us. We don't know. That's all we can say. For others, it's kind of a moot question because they understand that this story isn't telling us our origins as much as telling us our etiology. Now, I know that's a big, like, multi-syllable word. What I mean by etiology is that it, it tells you why you are. Not your origin story tells you why you behave the way you do. Every family has this kind of etiology. Why do we do it this way at Christmas? Why do we do it this way when we gather together? Why does our church behave in this particular way? Well, there's a story about why that is. And in some ways, what Genesis is doing is not just telling the story of the creation of the world, but telling you why you matter, who God is. And so there's these two different groups that come together here on Sunday morning, and they would answer that question in two very different ways. We come together to worship God in the same place, and we love each other deeply, But there is this shadow of a conflict that loops when we begin to talk about this in public. One side of that group might think that the other doesn't value Scripture, and while the other group thinks the first might be acting just a little bit naive, and both of those perspectives is equally pejorative. 
Either way, if we're not careful, when this conversation ends, there may be blood on the ground. Now, I got to tell you that one of these groups is right and the other one is wrong, but I don't know which is which. My father studied geology. He had a master's in geology, and, and he, was, uh, he, was, he read Genesis 1 in a literal way. He believed it was seven literal days, and he spent most of his life finding ways to, to look at the geological record to support that idea that came from Scripture. Others who engage science in an equally meaningful way come to that story and say, well, it's trying to tell us who we are. And somebody in the ancient Near East would have no idea how a fossil record might work. My point is this. The sin that killed brotherhood between Cain and Abel is the sin that kills brother and sisterhood at our church if we let it. If we're not engaged in joining God as he repairs this broken world. Some of us grew up in homes where it felt like there was a limited amount of love, where, par- where attention from parents sometimes needed to be conf- competed for. Some of you grew up in homes where it felt like if you didn't get the high enough grades, then you weren't loved. If you didn't get on the varsity team, then you weren't worth anything. If you weren't achieving and in demonstrating this in wild and profound ways, then you, your family didn't care. But in the economy of God, there is never a fixed amount of love. In the economy of God's family, there is never a fixed amount of attention or grace or blessing. You are not hopelessly defined by your sinfulness, not before and not after. And God is still willing to be your keeper. You may feel like you've been wandering for a long time in a place that is not your home. God is asking a lot of you. It seems too much to give up your anger and be freed in reconciliation. The haunted fear of Cain is, is, is a perfect match to the offense. The murderer lives in fear of being murdered. How much energy is wasted guarding your awful burden of anger? How much life is bottled up because reconciliation means letting go? God has not given up on this broken world. God still loves it and God still loves you. What he's asking you today is join him in that work and be part of the redemption in this place. I want to invite our our prayer team forward. Uh, In just a minute, we're going to have a benediction, but uh, we have a prayer team. Our shepherds and and some trusted members want to be available to pray with you. And after the service, you can come to the front and find them. And whether that's a, a conversation that you'd like to have or a moment of prayer or a cup of coffee that needs to happen later in this week, Uh, Our shepherds, they want to be available for you, and you can find them, and you can trust them. Would you please stand for our benediction? This week, I want to give you a challenge. 
Two weeks ago, I asked you to go out and find the beauty of God's creation. This week, you don't need to go outside. I want you to turn your gaze inward and find the bitterness, find the anger, find that part of you that you're holding. Find that, that part of you that's making you sick, but you're, you still guard it. And find the courage to take it to God and see what happens. May you be filled with God's grace this week. May you be a person that knows that you don't always get it right, but God loves you still. Be full of grace and go in peace.